Mac Power Users, episode 359, Big Questions. Hello, everyone. This is David Sparks, along with my pal, Katie Floyd. Hello, Katie Floyd. How are you today? I'm great, David. How are you? Outstanding. The weather continues to give us rain here in Southern California. We're thankful for it. The hills are green. It's just so weird to see water around here. That's nice. It's January and 80 degrees here, so that's pretty normal. Yeah, but it's always like sticky over there. It's usually dry here, so this is nice. Um, the uh, So everything's going well in California. Had a great holiday, great new year. Looking forward to going into 2017 with the Mac Power users. Yeah. And so we figured since we're still kind of in beginning of the year mode, although this is our second podcast of 2017, we would take this opportunity to answer some of the big questions that people asked us in 2016. You know, we're still beginning of the year, looking forward, looking back. And, um, you know, David and I get a lot of email, a lot of email. And um, one of the things that we noticed is certain trends seem to develop um, over the questions that we're we're asked over and over again. Um, and, and we try to answer some of those on the, the MPU plus follow up shows. But it, it seems like no matter how often you do, you, you still get some of these big questions. And, and these are big topics that affect a lot of people. So we thought that we would devote this entire show and maybe it can just be used as a big reference number. I'll add it to my text expander database. But, you know, this is the show where we try to go back and look at some of those most frequently asked questions and really some of those big issues that people seem to have with their Macs and and try to, as best we can at least, solve them. Yeah. I mean, a lot of these, what happens gang for inside baseball here is when we get these questions, we have uh, documents, we keep these in and we kind of use them to draw on future show topics. A lot of these that we're going to talk about today are, are questions that aren't big enough to merit a full Mac power user show, but still need to be answered and they take some time to answer. So this gives us a chance to kind of flush that stuff out and, and talk about these many topics a bit. And I'm looking forward to getting started with it. But before we do, we got a little bit of news to talk about. Uh, it's 2017. Katie and I uh, have the privilege of being asked back to the faculty at the American Bar Association tech show that takes place in Chicago every year. So in March, Katie and I will be speaking to lawyers talking about how to use their Macs and technology and, and get better at this stuff. Uh, and it's going to be really good. Katie, what are the topics you're speaking on? Mm. No, I do. Um, <laughs> I am giving three talks. I, I don't have them quite planned out yet. Uh, one is on Mac-based automation. One is on iOS apps. And one is really open-ended that I don't really know what we're going to talk about yet. It's like how to make the most out of your Mac. And I'm like, mm, gosh, that's pretty vague. Well, for it's strange. For the first time, I've been speaking of this thing for a long time. This is the first time I'm not speaking about the Mac. Strange enough, I'm talking about email productivity. I'm talking about GTD, more kind of general productivity uh, tracks that I'm going to be talking in. So if you're a lawyer or a judge or someone who works in the legal profession, I would recommend going to the ABA Tech Show. It's a lot of fun. It's the nicest group of lawyers you're ever going to meet. Uh, I guess that's the best way to put it. Um it's a lot of fun. So I'd go to that. But if you're not a lawyer and you still want to meet us, uh, we want to do a Mac Power Users meetup. We did one last year, but it kind of came together at the last minute. So this year we're trying to make good on getting better at planning. So uh, we're planning ahead. There, What a novel concept. There we go. So it looks very much like we will be doing this event on the evening of Wednesday, March 15th, 2017 in Chicago. David, you hedged your bets there. We're not hedging our bets. We are doing this event on the evening of March 15th. 
okay, all right, we're doing the event on March 15th. I'm going to buy my plane ticket, make sure I'm there on time. Uh, we are going to be located, the convention and Katie and I will be located at the Hilton Hotel um, on the south side of Michigan there, down by the um, the museums and the sport, uh, the uh, the Bear Stadium, and, you know, down there on that side of the town. So we're probably going to do the event somewhere around there, maybe even in the Hilton. But we're not sure yet. But one key piece of data we need to know is how many people can we expect? You know, we don't know if this is going to be Katie and me and, you know, that's it. Or if it's going to be, you know, 50 people or 100 people, we just don't know how many people are interested. And we've had pretty big turnout at a lot of these meetups in the past, but we don't want to make assumptions. The Hilton, we, we actually can get a dedicated room this time at the Hilton, but we need to know that in advance. We need to plan it in advance. And that's why we need to know from the Mac Power users community how many are going to come. And if if we end up having a little smaller group, we'll, we may do something a little bit different, but we will do something in that area on the evening of March 15th. So I'm sorry, I cut you off, David. Go ahead and tell them what they need to do. Yeah. So also, if you're a native Chicagoan and you've got an idea for us, because neither Katie or I are there, it's always tough planning these things when you're not in the city and you uh, have some ideas, please let us know via email and we will uh, we will take you up on that. Uh, but in the meantime, we are setting up an Eventbrite. Um, Katie's going to get it up before the show publishes. So we'll have a link in the show notes. And uh, if, please sign up if you're serious about it. If If you're just thinking about it, um, you know, we're going to make decisions based on the number of people that sign up before we have a location. So uh, please be serious about it if you sign up. But we would love to see you on March 15th when it is going to happen in Chicago. Yeah. And there's not going to be any cost to attend. We don't think David and I are going to pitch in the cost or, or try to get a sponsor to cover it. Um, but there's not going to be any cost to you to sign up for the Eventbrite. It's just really, if you sign up, you're saying, yes, I'm going to be there. We know that it's going to be in Chicago on March 15th. We just need a headcount to finalize the details on the place. So I, I think we've nailed that down. I think we've got that covered. Clear as mud. All right. Let's get on to these big questions. I didn't know if we need in the show big questions or common questions, but big questions sounds much more dramatic. So we went with that. It does. So these are these are the big questions. Um, so I think we'll we'll maybe round robin this a little bit, but but and David, I'll I'll ask you your big questions, and and you can ask me some big questions too. But one of the most common questions that we get um, revolves around photos, and so I'm going to toss this to you, David, to to at least start the answer, and I'll I'll chime in here because David, you wrote a field guide on photos, a video field guide on photos, and even with the photos app and iCloud storage people are still a little uneasy and things like that on what to do with their photos library. Do they just cross their fingers and send it all up to iCloud and leave it to that? Um, are there other options? What do you do when you have a really big photos library? So I guess that the question that is currently on the table for discussion is how do you back up and preserve your photos? Yeah, it's it's difficult. And this is a question we see probably once a week, uh, someone writing in about how do you deal with, you know, maintenance and backup of your photos library? Uh, and I know why that question is so common, because of all the data on your hard drive, your photos may be the most precious. I mean, and photos library also includes video, by the way. So all the video you've taken of your kids or your family or your dog or whatever. So the question becomes, how do you maintain it? We've talked in the past in our backup shows about um, the importance of the photos library. I mean, I, I've a couple times been in Apple stores watching the geniuses console somebody who lost their photos. I, I told the story once on the show because this one really sticks with me. 
the the lady had lost her hard drive on her Mac, and she said, "Well, all of my college pictures were in there. It can't be lost." And he's like, "Well, did you back it up?" She says, "No, but it can't be lost." And you, the tears were just streaming down her face, and she was coming to realization that you know, four years worth of pictures of one of the most important eras of her life were just gone. <laughs> There's nothing to do about it. So uh, I'd like to tell that story on the show because I want everybody to to step in the shoes of that person just a little bit and think about what you've done to back up your photos so you don't have to face that reality. I, it would just kill me. And I don't know the, the relative age of this woman in the, the Apple store, but I think it's it's a bigger issue probably for a population of people who may not necessarily be listening to this podcast because for so many people, their photos only live on their iPhone. Yeah. I, I don't know. This was, um, she, she clearly had her in an iPhoto library cause that that's where everything was. So, but that, that is a growing problem now that for so many people, they don't have photos on their Mac. Their photos are only on their iPhone and that's another problem too. Yeah, it is. Um, and, and I guess we'll, we'll get to that because I, the, the solutions I, so, so the question that gets asked of me is how do you deal with this? How do you back up your own photos? Um, uh, it's not surprising that I do it many ways. Um, just the starting point is I do have a Mac and I know some people listening to the show, I guess we need to start uh, couching these answers with respect to people that have a Mac and don't have a Mac. Cause there's quite a few people that don't anymore. Um, but the, um, because I have a Mac, I store everything on the root SSD of my iMac. You know, I've got the, I've talked about on the show before, I've got this iMac with a decent sized hard drive in it. So when you're using the Apple Photos app, there's a selection in the preferences where you can say store them in the cloud only or keep local copies. So I keep local copies of them. It takes up a significant chunk of my hard drive. Um, and there's some ways to get around that. Um, there is uh, a couple apps that I would recommend. The first one is called Fat Cat Software's Power Photos. Yeah, Power Photos, which ironically is sponsoring Max Sparky this week. It's the first time they've ever sponsored anything I've done, but whatever. <laughs> but but they they do a really good job of letting you you back up and find duplicates. Um, the other one is I'll come back to it in just a second because it just occurred to me as I was talking, that I should mention that app. But uh, so you get some apps to help you deal with the duplication on uh, of your photos. Another one I use on the iPhone is called Flick. I mentioned this one recently on the show as well, F-L-I-C. And it's a way to go through very quickly and look at the pictures you took in the last month and throw out the duplicates or the ones you don't like. But, you know, coming up with a technique to kind of thin out the herd of all these photos you've got is a good way to kind of make it more possible to keep it on your root drive. Uh, either way, I've got enough. I've got the library ma managed to such an extent that it fits fine on my on my SSD attached to my iMac. And because it's there, that allows me to have a couple places I get it backed up to almost for free. Uh, the first one is a time machine, time machine backup. I use that. I think everybody should at this point, frankly. It's just so easy. You plug in a hard drive and you're good to go. Um, and I also pay a yearly um subscription to Backblaze. And Backblaze is one of the several online uh, backup services. They're my favorite. And so for, I think it's $60 or $50 a month, I pay them plus my time machine. I've already got two copies. And one of the nice things- No, no, no. It's, it's, it's $5 a month or $50 a year. You said $50 a month. Ooh, okay. I meant $50 a year. I'm sorry. Um, so, so with Backblaze, I've got an offsite backup of my library and with Time Machine, I've got this, this other backup and then I've got the one on the drive. So at this point, I've already got three copies, 
but that's not good enough for me because I'm Max Barkey. Uh, <laughs> um, I have an external drive that I am um, that I store things to, and recently, so I've got. We're going to talk a little bit later about um, external like cold storage, but in addition to my Drobo, I also recently bought one of these really cheap. Um, I think it's a four terabyte drive. It's a spinning disk. It's not an SSD. I paid about a hundred bucks for it. And I just Velcroed it to the bottom of my desk and plugged it into one of those USB hubs. So now I've got an extra bit of storage under the desk in essence. And I run a Chronosync script that once a week makes a copy of the photos library. The nice thing about using photos is everything is in one place. So you can just copy that entire library onto an external drive. Um, so I get that additional copy a week. And then also once a month, I have a big monster. I think, I think it's a, like a six terabyte Western digital that I plug into the Mac once a month. It's a, it's an OmniFocus task for me. So while I'm working, I plug it in and that runs a Chronosync script that copies everything off the Drobo onto that Western digital drive, which I then hide in the house. So if a thief comes in and they steal everything off the desk, they're going to have to look really hard to find the other one with all the data on it. That doesn't just get photos, by the way, that gets all my records and, you know, all the stuff that's important to me. Uh, so, uh, so now how many is that now? I've got one, two, three, four. So that's five copies. <laughs> then um, the other thing I did was because I'm so anal about this stuff and I did that screencast on it recently. I, um, I went ahead and I just exported everything out of my photos library to, to a JPEG a uh, hierarchical folder thing a while back, a couple of years ago. And then I was putting those on transporter for a while. Now I've uploaded them to Google photos. Um, and some people don't feel comfortable with that because of Google's privacy policies, but I'm okay. And I need to test it because I'm doing this kind of stuff, but you could also save it to a Dropbox or, you know, stick it on an extra drive and, you know, give it to a family member. But I've got a lot of copies of my photos at the end of the day. I, so, I, so I write people back. I think they think I'm insane, but uh, I am never going to have that problem that lady did of losing all her pictures. Wow, that's thorough. Pictures to me are a big deal. So you talked about, I mean, that's a great way to back up your your photos if they live natively on your Mac. And I, I think there are a couple of things that we need to highlight big picture with that. Number one is you have to keep somewhere on one of your Macs that initiates this backup process a complete copy of your photo library. This doesn't work if you have the optimized storage setting set where the only full complete copy of your photo library is in iCloud. The only way this works is if you have a complete copy of your photo library sitting on the Mac that kicks off all of this backup happening. So that is extremely important and should not be overlooked. Agreed. The other thing I think we need to look at is what do you do for the person who doesn't have their photos on their Mac? Maybe they're iOS only. Maybe they don't plug their phone into the Mac. Maybe they don't have a Mac. Maybe they don't have a photo library on your Mac. What do you do? And I, I know that's probably not a majority of the listeners to Mac Power users, but but there are some options for those people too. And I think they're worth mentioning because if you have um, kids or friends or acquaintances who only use their phone as a as a fancy camera, and then what do you do when they go get another one or when they drop it? Um, there, there are a couple of options there. Um, one is to go ahead and turn on the iCloud photo sharing so that um, and, and I don't think I have those those names right, but to go into um, to upload their photos to iCloud so that iCloud keeps a complete copy of their photos. And that's good, but it's probably going to require buying additional iCloud photo storage space, which I think you should do, but a lot of people may not 
Other options that are good is both there, there are several third-party apps, including the Google Photos app, including the Amazon Photos apps, if you're an Amazon Prime subscriber, as well as the Dropbox app that will auto-import photos as they're taken from your camera roll. Yeah, all three of those, you can store to their cloud. And I, I don't think I would do just one if it was my photos. Especially if you're not backing up your photos to your Mac. Um, so I think those are some options that you can either do as a second belt and suspenders, or especially if you take most of your photos on iOS only, or, you know, or if you want to do something that doesn't capture the photos that are on your, that are, that are stored just on your Mac. Everybody wants to be the person that you store photos with. And, um, because that there's a bunch of stickiness to that. Once you start putting your photos with one vendor or another, you're going to stay with them. Um, uh, just a bit of house clean on this this question earlier. I said I couldn't remember the name of the app. It was Gemini Two, which is another very good app. Uh, Gemini Two. One of the things it does, it's a um, duplication fi- file finder, but it looks in your photos library and it looks for similar photos. And it'll, like if you took six of the same pose, you know how when you're sitting like somewhere and you've got a nice image and you've got a bunch of people, you'll just fire off six pictures because you don't know which one uh, will have everybody actually smiling it and not looking like they just you know. I know, are ready to jump off a bridge or something. So uh, Gemini lets you compare those and get rid of the ones you don't want from the from the Gemini app, which is kind of nice. Yeah. I'll tell you the other one that I've used, and I've used Gemini and that works great too. The other one that I've used and had a lot of success with is um, Photo Sweeper. Yeah, I haven't used that one. Yeah, it will allow you to do not only exact duplicates, but similar photos that, that are similar, but not exact duplicates. So if you took like, you know, six in a row very quickly. Great. So uh, thin your li- the answer is thin your library down and put copies in as many places as you can think. Um, our usual 3-2 run rule, you know, three copies, you know, two different um, mediums, one different place. Uh, I think it, it doesn't apply for photos. I think it should be much more than three copies. Uh, you know, find a way. And these, these drives are not that expensive. Like I said, I just recently stuck one at the bottom of my desk just to have a spare tire. And I'm very happy I do. The other thing I don't want to pass over quickly is, is I did this idea of having a separate J, separate JPEG archive not tied to any library or system isn't a bad idea as well. While we're on the subject of photos, a related question that we probably get just as often as how to back up your photos is how do you share photos within a family? As as good as iCloud photo sharing is, we still have or family sharing is, we still haven't gotten a great way of just allowing family members to share all of their photos with each other. Yeah, there isn't a simple way is the answer. I mean, we get this question and I, I never really have a great answer because for whatever reason, Apple has never really you know, got on board with allowing you to have a shared photos library. Uh, now, I understand you can create a shared photos library, and we do it all the time in our family. Like, we just did one recently with the Christmas holiday. I think you mean like a shared photos album, not a library. Yes. I'm sorry, album. And um, and that's great. And that's that's a big part of the solution to me. Um, but if you look at my wife's library, like, we were just out recently, and she was taking pictures. And I, she got a really good shot. And it occurred to me that I will never have that shot in my library Unless we, you know, do something about it. Now, in our Sparks family, we have this library called Sparks Prime, which is kind of nerdy, right? But it's me. And so anytime anybody in the family takes a picture um, that every somebody else wants, 
I just told, I just told Daisy when she took that picture the other day, I said, please put that in Sparks Prime. And she just, you know, did it. She shared it to that library. Now I have it. But if I don't tell her to do that, then I don't get it. Uh, when we go to a family event like Christmas, um, the very first thing we do is we set up a shared album. And, um, you know, we because everybody in my family is used to it now because they've got the nerd in the family, everybody saves their pictures to the album. And uh, so we've got these kind of shared albums where certain events or certain things that we want, we get shared. But I will never have a complete copy of every picture in my wife's library, in my library, unless I were to go and export those images from her library and then import them into photos. Now, that's not that difficult. You could do it. But if you do it, make sure you do it properly. There is a export function in the photos application that allows you to embed all the metadata. For instance, you have location data on a lot of these pictures because you took them on your iPhone. You want to get that stuff. So when you import it into your new computer um, or your new library, it, you don't lose that. Another thing that's really important is what the date when they were shot. I mean, like uh, we scanned in a whole bunch of really old photos of our family, and those all show that they were shot the day they were scanned even though some of them are 30, 40, 50 years old. So um, to the extent you can get the export, the pictures from the library of your spouse and then import them into your library with all the available data. It's still not a shared library, but it is a way to consolidate or share information. Um, but if you want to truly share it, uh, the answer is not in Apple photos. You're going to have to go somewhere else. And I, I don't really know that there's anybody really solving that problem yet. Well, hopefully Apple, I mean, I think the best way to solve this problem is for Apple to solve this problem by making modifications to family sharing. But Apple hasn't really changed the way that they've handled family sharing in a while. So I think it may be one of those things that Apple does and think is good enough and doesn't handle again. Well, I do think some of the problem is storage. If suddenly I had a my library combined with all the pictures my kids take of things that have no, I have no interest in, and all the things my pic pictures my wife takes. My wife goes to a craft show and takes like 300 pictures of stamps. I don't want that stuff, you know. So um, it, it just, you know, if they did, if they made it that simple, then everybody's library would get over capacity almost immediately that has a family. So I don't know how the answer is. I, I'm not even sure I want a shared library with everything my wife takes, but um I do think they could make it easier to share things around. I mean, the only reason why we have the shared album is uh, is to do that. I think a lot of users aren't aware of that. So I guess if you're facing this problem right now, an immediate thing you can do is get clever about some of these shared albums. We make them in our family based on the event, you know, like a, like a holiday. We also make them based on people. We just had a baby born in our family recently. So we've got this baby album. So whoever gets to spend time with the baby and takes a cute picture goes in there. And now that one has expanded not only to my whole family, but the all the in-laws family. So that one has like 20 people in it. So that's always got activity in there. Uh, and also have some kind of semi-permanent ones like, like, you know, Sparks Prime, you know, have the family prime, you know, shared album. And that makes it really easy to share. Like, Katie, you should have one with your mom and your dad and your brother and your sister-in-law. You know, you guys should have one just between your nuclear family so you guys can easily share pictures. Yeah. One of the problems, though, with those those shared photos, and I wish this was a setting, is that whoever has that main photo library gets the or who took the photos gets the high resolution version and other people get a compressed version. It's not the full version. That's no fun. They could make that better. They could make that better or at least make it a setting. Do you want the full version or the, the bad one? I want to thank our sponsor, Pixelmator. 
Pixelmator is a full-featured image editor for Mac and iOS. It is a fast, powerful, easy-to-use image editor that lets you enhance and touch up photos, sketch, draw, paint, add text, add shapes, and apply dazzling effects to your photos, artwork, and more. And you can learn more by heading over to Pixelmator.com. So I want to spend a moment telling you a little bit about Pixelmator for the Mac. For years, I have used high-power image editors like Adobe Photoshop and more, but I have found I just don't need them for a fraction of the price. Pixelmator does everything that I need and a whole lot more. It takes full advantage of the latest Mac technologies, giving you speedy and powerful tools that let you touch up and enhance images, draw or paint and apply dazzling effects, or create advanced compositions with amazingly simple steps. Once your images are ready, you can access them anywhere with iCloud. You can send them to the Photos app or mail, print, or share them, whatever you want to do, all right from within Pixelmator. Pixelmator is a powerful, pixel-accurate collection of selection tools that allows you to easily select and manipulate any part of your image. I mean, these are real professional tools that you're getting access to for a fraction of the price of some of the other programs. You can use their retouching tools to correct little blemishes like wrinkles or repair scratches from your old photos. You can make flaws vanish from your photos. You can even remove or rearrange objects in the composition. And of course, you can blur, sharpen, or lighten, or darken specific areas. You can get rid of red eye with just one click. And you can do even more to make even amazing photo compositions. They have over 160 different breathtaking effects that you can play with. And you can combine different effects for unique and near effortless artistic creations and see stunning results in real time. Pixelmator has been completely updated. It's ready for the latest Mac OS. They've added touch bar support for the new MacBook Pros, and it is just fabulous. This is a developer who knows how to stay on top of the latest advancements, and it is built exclusively for the Mac, but Pixelmator is also available for iOS. So to learn more, head over to pixelmator.com, and you can pick up Pixelmator in the App Store. Thanks, Pixelmator, for your support of the show. All right, Katie Floyd, your turn. We get a lot of questions from listeners about wrangling contacts. How do you do that? Well, you know, this is another question that we get asked so often, and usually it's because people have contacts on iCloud and Google and maybe in Yahoo and and maybe in other places, and they find out, you know, I've got David Sparks in my phone three times, and he's got a good address here and a bad address here, and I don't know which one of these is his phone number, and, and what do I do about that? And I'll tell you, there's really not a great way to wrangle contacts. I mean, you can get it done and you can get it done right, but unfortunately it is very time intensive. So we've talked about this a couple of times on some of our contact show, but I guess this will, this will be the place where we send people from now on to talk about it. And this is, this is still the procedure that I follow. Um, for me, the truth is in the cloud. So I personally believe that unless there is a major reason that you shouldn't, you know, if you are just in a job that has uber high security or won't let you do this, that to the extent that you can, your contacts should live in the cloud and the truth is in the cloud. So that is where your primary contacts database should be. And I also think that to the extent possible, you should try to limit the number of places that you keep your contacts. So for example, if if your work makes you segregate your work contacts from your personal contacts, you know, if, if you have a type of job where you need to do that, then that's probably a good idea. You're probably going to end up with two. 
Um, but if, if you're not in that type of area where you really only need one set of contacts, I say pick one, pick one service, and that's going to be the service that manages your contacts. And likewise, pick one service. And a lot of these same principles apply with, with calendar management as well. So I would say pick one service to manage your contacts, figure out where it's going to be. And in this example, I'm going to use iCloud. Let's say that you decide that iCloud is the place where you're going to manage all of your contacts. And I do that just because I think iCloud's contact interface is a little bit nicer than Google's. You could certainly use Google's. They work as well. So pick a service. And and this is the where things get a little hairy. But what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to go to all the various places where you have contacts, figure out whether you've got some in your iCloud account, some in your Google account, some in your Yahoo account, and some that are just sitting on your Mac. And you're going to have to download all of those contacts. And I say download them because I want you to have a backup of all of these contacts because we're going to start messing with them. And then just save a copy, you know, create a folder on your desktop that says contacts as of whatever date, make a copy of that, but then take those contacts and import all of your contacts into your iCloud account. Because remember, we're using iCloud in this example so that every contact that you have now lives in iCloud. And this is the scary part, but I want you to then go to all of your other services. I want you to go to Google and Yahoo and AOL and and even all of the contacts that only live on your Mac, and I want you to delete them. And then sync all of your devices so that they delete from all of your devices. So now what you have is all of your contacts and a lot of duplicates and probably a lot of mess up in iCloud, but they're all there. Everything you have is now in one place. And this is the piece that's going to take some time. You now have to go through and start organizing and cleaning them. Some of this you can do with automation. There's a great app called Contacts Cleaner, which unfortunately has not been updated in a while, but still works. I still use it pretty regularly. And if anybody knows of an updated version or something that does something similar that's, that's currently um, being updated, let me know. And you're going to have to go through and figure out where do I have um, extra spaces in contacts? Where do I have duplicate entries? And some of this will be automated and we'll do a good job of cleaning that up for you. But in terms of where do you have bad information, that's not something that any service is going to do for you. That's something that you're just going to have to take a painstaking process of going through and editing the information manually. Because if David got a new phone number, there's no app that's going to be able to figure that out. You're, you're going to have to go through uh, and edit those contacts manually. And you can, you know, do 10 a day and y you'll get through them all at one point, but that's that's how I recommend doing it. But once they're done, they're done. Yeah, I am. Um, when I left my law firm, I and I was able to split. You know, I used to have a bunch of contacts in iCloud and a bunch of contacts in Exchange. And one of the things I did, as I said, the new practice is I just put all my my legal and my you know my lawyer contacts into iCloud, and I have albums. You know, so I've got basically or con what do they call contact groups? I just talking about albums, but you know, you got the groups. So I've got groups related to law, groups related to being attorneys. And so I've got, you know, additional groups to support that part of my life now. And since I've put everything into one system, I've had relatively no problems. Um, the, the, uh, the process of auditing your contacts, I do that. Um, I have a, once again, OmniFocus, right? I have a repeating task every two months. And the task is, um, the way I do it is I, I put in 
like when it shows up, I'll go in and do a couple letters. I'll do the A's and the B's. And then um, when I finish, I'll go into the task because it repeats when I check it off. I'll go into the next in the next instance of the task in OmniFocus, and I'll just type in the notes field, the next letter that I need to work on. So I'd put C. So that, And then two months, it'll show up, and maybe um, I'm feeling kind of brain dead that day, and I'll spend an hour, and I'll get, you know, C through F, and then I'll put, you know, what, so you just put a, you work in small bursts, spurts of energy. I don't think you have to do it all at once. And the way I do it, you know, it's like painting the Golden Gate Bridge. Have you ever heard that story? They paint the Golden Gate Bridge and they get to the end. They have to go back and start painting it again. So I'm just constantly, every couple months, I'll spend a little bit of time auditing contacts. It's never like one of these overwhelming things where I have to do it all day. But in general, the database is in pretty good shape that way. Uh, the other nice thing is whenever you see a mistake, just fix it. You know, don't don't spend as much time going and making that a separate task, but just be aware of it as you're using it. And um, the more... I'm sorry, the cleaner your data is in your contacts database, the more you become to rely upon it. So I'm all day long making phone calls and taking notes in the contacts database because I've got a good one. And that actually makes it it even better because then I find mistakes and fix them right away. Um, It's it's just like, you know, gardening a little bit. You got to prune them. But I... I think one contact database or as few contact databases as you can possibly get away with. And unfortunately, if your contacts are in pretty bad shape, it, it, it may take a little while to get it cleaned up, but uh, it's it's well worth the efforts and keep your contacts in the cloud. So then they sync across to everything automatically. Now, some people listening will say that's well and good for you fancy independent worker types, but you know, my, my, um, my day job has a big fancy exchange contacts database and my personal stuff is an iCloud. Uh, what's your advice to that person? Well, then, then do it twice. Keep all your day job stuff in your day jobs contact exchange database and keep your personal stuff in iCloud, but, but keep as few as possible. And fix what you can. You know, I mean, sometimes when it's a, a job related contacts database, you don't even have the ability to fix it, but try to. Okay, um, we had another question. We have time for me to do another one now. Yeah, let's do another one now. Something uh, I get quite often is because I write a lot about um, task management and kind of productivity systems, and I did that screencast on OmniFocus. So one of the most common questions asked of me is, what do you do when it becomes overwhelming? And I get this email, I mean, at least every two days almost i can usually count on one of these a day from somebody and um i've written a couple small blog posts on it but i've never really taken it on and the nice thing about the mac powers is you can kind of talk through a subject um uh so you know the, the the real problem is you get a task management system in your life and suddenly it becomes really easy to capture tasks and people start capturing everything that they think of and it feels really good but i call it the productivity boomerang you know you get your mind empty which is great but before you know it, you wake up and you look at your task management list and it's completely overwhelming because there's so much stuff in there. I think that's a very common occurrence for people as they start to get more um, more organized and start putting together a productivity system. And this isn't just an OmniFocus thing. No matter which productivity app works for you or task management app, um, if it's good, you're going to probably run into this problem. And um, I think that... Uh, this is a problem that we all face, but most of us are in denial about that. We have more commitments in our life than we're able to fulfill. And I think that having an electronic system is like a lens. It allows you to see 
because you write it down. So you have physical evidence or digital evidence of how overwhelmed you are and how much you've stuck yourself in a big dark hole. Um, uh, Merlin Mann told me once he was giving a talk somewhere and he was talking about productivity and how much time you have to get the work done. And he did it with water where he was talking about he would pour water into these vats and say, okay, let's say you've got this much water, this which represents how much time you have, and you've got this vat of, you know, I guess it was the vessel was the time you have, and the water is how much you have to do, and there's just more water in the vet than there's room in the vessel. So he started pouring the water, and then suddenly the water just started spilling out in the table, and everybody in the room was freaking out, but he was trying to make his point. Uh, I guess to summarize it, how do you put 10 gallons of water into a five-gallon bucket? And the answer is you don't, <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter which digital system you have. If you've got 10 gallons of water and you've only got five gallons to hold. You got to drink five gallons. <laughs> you, five is going to, no, five gallons is going to end up on the floor is what's going to happen. And uh, I really, um, to me, that's kind of the ninja level of all this is when you hit that wall and you realize, oh my goodness, I have more in here than I have time to do. Uh, when you take that as a warning call and you look at it and you say, okay, I have more than I have time to do. I do have 10 gallons of water and a five gallon bucket. So what am I going to do about that? Well, you can make the bucket a little bigger. That's one of the things we talk about on Mac power users. If you listen to our show, where there's all types of uh, automation and productivity hacks and things we come up with to help uh, make the bucket a little bigger. But at the end of the day, you still have a lot of water and a small bucket. So, um, you can actually use these digital tools to go to the next step. And this is what I want people to do whenever you start to feel like you're against that wall is I want you to be mindful of this. So take a minute and don't worry about the fact that you have all this stuff to do, but just look at the stuff you have to do. Look at everything you've written down. And it might've made perfect sense to write some of this stuff down when you did. But now that you're coming at this from the knowledge that um, you don't have enough time in your life to do everything that you've written down, you have to make you know, your big boy and your big girl decisions about what you're going to do. And I deal with this every once in a while. I just wrote on Max Barkey about a month ago. How I looked one day and I realized I had like 20 due dates, like when I woke up. I'm like, and I'm the one who's always preaching against that. Don't put due dates unless it's actual a due date. But I fell into the trap, you know, and the trap is when you start getting behind on things, you start giving arbitrary due dates to things to kind of force yourself up. But the fact is you have 10 gallons of, of water in a five gallon bucket, so they don't get done and suddenly you start feeling bad. And then you add more due dates and, and then you're in this deep, dark place. And so so look for these trigger processes and whatever you have and have an audit in place and be willing to step back and say, OK, I see what I've done here. I have taken off more than I can do. So um, the audit process for me is saying, OK, there's a couple things I can do now. Clearly, I'm not going to get all this done in the next day or week or month or however, you know, time scale I'm thinking. So what should I do about that? I'm not going to make myself feel bad every day because I keep overwhelming myself. Instead, I'm going to make some decisions. Maybe some of this stuff can get put off. Um and I just went through this personally recently because last year was the first time I didn't publish an iBooks author book in a long time. And it was because I was getting a new law practice, you know, uh, done and, and, you know, we launched a new podcast with the free agents and Mac power users has been busy and all these things have going on in my life. A lot of good legitimate reasons for me not getting a book written. And I felt really bad about it, but about halfway through the year, when I realized it's just not going to happen, I didn't lose my mind. I just said, okay, so that's not going to happen. So I'm going to spend the next six months of 2016 getting all the other parts of my life organized. And then I'm going to legitimately set time in early 2017 to get this rolling again. 
Um, so that's one thing you can do is you can put it off. You can put it off a week or a month or years or whatever. But, you know, one thing you can do with the stuff is you feel overwhelmed is put it off into the future time. Another thing you can do is just make a decision that this isn't something that's going to happen anymore. Um, there are a couple projects that I think are really good that I want to do that I don't have time for. And I have just given them the ax and now they are out of my life. And so these digital tools, while they, they let you know that you're underwater, they also kind of give you a way to dig out if you're willing to make tough decisions. You know, use that filter on your inbox as you add things, ask if it's worth it. You know, your most precious commodity is your time. So, um, so don't, you know, don't let this stuff just pile up on you because if you do, you start feeling bad, you know, cause you look every day and you see all these things you're not doing and then you don't even get the stuff that you could get done, um, processed. So, uh, as you, uh, as you get better at the digital tools, just be, take my warning that you're going to hit that wall sometime and you're not going to hit it just once. I still hit it on occasion and you just have to step back and, you know, take it as a warning sign and you're, you're, hu- it just means you're human like the rest of us. So uh, does that make sense, Katie? I know I rambled a little bit there. I still got five gallons I got to deal with. Well, if it's just five gallons and you got a five gallon bucket, you're fine. It's when you have 10 gallons that I got to worry. That's what I mean. I got five extra gallons. I got to do something with. So. Well, you can either you can either drink it in the future or you can throw it down the drain. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in favor of throwing it down the drain personally. That's so. that's pretty good. I, I really think that um, setting realistic expectations for your goals is is a huge productivity boost. Um, it makes I, I just think it's one of the best things you can do. Uh, as you start getting better at this stuff. I mean, it's one. Of, it's like the next step. This episode is sponsored by MindNode, delightful mind mapping for the Mac, iPad, and iPhone. You can learn more at mindnode.com. While MindNode is a relatively new sponsor to the Mac Power users, I've been a longtime fan of this application. I first started buying MindNode when it was just a Mac app and before there was even such a thing as the iOS operating system. In the years since, MyNode has continued to evolve and it's expanded to support both the Mac, the iPhone, and the iPad. The catchphrase for MyNode is delightful mind mapping, and it's so appropriate for this application. Mind mapping can be a little intimidating. The first couple times I tried it, it just really didn't work for me. But MyNode gets it right. I've talked in the past about how MyNode is so great for brainstorming, but that's not all you can do with MyNode. You can also organize your thoughts there. MindNode is loaded with features to help you get from creative chaos to informative order. No matter which version of MindNode you're using on the Mac, iPad, or iPhone, it's really easy to rearrange your thoughts. Simply grab a node and pull it to the place that it belongs. MindNode takes care of the rest for you. Not only can you move your nodes around, you can also nest them and copy information from one inside another. I use this feature all the time when planning presentations with MindNode. First, I'll get all the ideas I want to get across on the MindNode canvas, and then I'll just start organizing them and changing the organization. Sometimes I'll get it all set up and then come and look at it the next day and find I want to change it around even again. MindNode makes it visual and easy to do this. For more complicated organization, you can use tools like cross connections and the built-in outliner to see how everything fits together. But the important thing is that no matter what platform you're on, whether it's the Mac, iPad, or iPhone, organizing your mind map is a breeze with MindNode. I did a screencast for the folks over at MindNode just on how I organize my mind maps. It's almost 12 minutes long, and you can find it at mindnode.com slash support slash screencasts. I'll also put a link into the show notes that gets you directly there. 
If you'd like to learn more about how to organize your mind maps with MyNode, this is a great place to start. So go check out MyNode. It truly is delightful mind mapping for the Mac, iPad, and iPhone. You're going to love this application and let them know you heard about it on the Mac Power Users. Katie Floyd, um, you ha- you are the fan of the network detached storage. You, you've talked about it on the show in the past. Uh, since you brought that subject up, we have had a bunch of emails from people asking about how do you do backup with the NAS? So Katie Floyd, how do you do that? Yes, I get this question all the time. So a couple of issues with network attached storage. I love network attached storage. I've had a Drobo. I now have a Synology and I'm having so much fun with that. I do backing up a couple of ways with network attached storage. So let's talk about backing up to network attached storage. And then how do you actually back up the data that's on the network attached storage? Because those are two different questions, but but we get both of them. Um, Many of the modern NASs, the Drobos, the Synologies, and then there's this whole kind of category of of smart hard drive that's maybe not quite a NAS, but also more than a hard drive. Like I think I think Western Digital has one now. Um, is is like a smart hard drives that are attached by networks that support Time Machine, and so a lot of these devices can be configured for Time Machine backup. And honestly, a lot of them are better Time Machine backups than Apple's Time Capsule, which rumor has it those are going away now. So. Um, the, the thing that I've done is I have configured all of my NASs to back up network attached to back up via time machine. So all of my computers now back up via time machine to my network attached storage. One of the things that I think is particularly important is because, um, time machine tends to have issues with network attached storage when you're trying to back up multiple computers to the same place, because, what it does is it just creates a sparse image for every computer that you're trying to back up. And so if you've only dedicated, let's just say, a terabyte on your NAS unit to back up all of your computers, you know, your MacBook Pro that's backing up to the NAS doesn't know that your Mac Mini is also backing up to the NAS. And so then those sparse images start to, at some point, grow and bump into each other, and then you have issues. So one of the things that I recommend is even if the shares are smaller, set up separate shares for each computer that is backing up to the NAS. So I have two smaller shares for my MacBook Pro and for my Mac Mini that are both backing up to the NAS. So they each have their own dedicated space that they can back up to, and there's nothing else that they're going to bump into there. So that's one of my tips for for backing up to Time Machine to network attached storage. And then, of course, you can use, if you just want to back up individual files and folders, you can you know use a tool like Chronosync or one of those um, to back up individual files. But one of the big benefits that we've talked about quite a bit of having a big pot of storage somewhere is you can put all this data into cold storage, as you call it, David, and just store whatever you want, you know, store photos, store files, store video files, do whatever types of things that you want to do um, and store it to, to those devices. The problem is, even if it's a Drobo or a NAS or one of these devices that, that has built-in redundancies, if you have a hard drive failure, it's still a single device. So you still have a single point of failure. If you have a power surge or if you have a theft or if you have water or anything like that, you still have one single device that can fail. And if your NAS fails, you could conceivably lose all of the data that's on that NAS. So I believe strongly that a na- anything that is saved to a NAS still needs to be backed up. 
So what I have done, and the easiest way I think to do that for now, is you can buy really big hard drives now. And I went out on Amazon, and I think you can buy like a five terabyte hard drive for under 150 bucks. And, you know, as the show gets older, those those prices only come down. You can even buy a 10 terabyte hard drive now. So what I've done is I've taken a fairly inexpensive USB hard drive. Um, like David, I've just stuck it up under my desk and I've, I've encrypted it and I've plugged it into my computer and I use Carbon Copy Cloner and I have a task that fires off in the middle of, I think it's at 1 a.m. On, on Saturday or Sunday morning and it will run a backup task that backs up everything from the data drive on my NAS. I don't need to back up the time machine partitions, but everything that's on the data drive of my NAS gets backed up to that USB hard drive that's stuck under my desk. And that USB hard drive is encrypted. So if anybody grabs the drive, I know that they're not going to be able to get my data off of it. But here's another. So I now have a direct backup of the data on that NAS to a local hard drive. So if I have to replace the NAS, I can restore that data fairly quickly. But a secondary benefit is um, offsite cloud storage solutions like Backblaze, although it will not back up data on network attached storage, it will back up local storage. So I set that um, backup hard drive, I keep it attached, and I let Backblaze then back up whatever has changed on that hard drive. That's that's new, right? I don't think you've done that since the last time we talked about this. No, I've done that for a while. So the the first time you run that backup, you're probably going to have to keep that hard drive attached for a couple of days, um, maybe a week, maybe a month. Depends on how much data you have on it. So that that will be a big initial backup to Backblaze. But keep in mind, you're just backing up your backup. But you're not disconnecting it, right? You're leaving it connected full time. Yeah, I'm leaving it connected full time. Um, and then what happens is my backup carbon copy cloner script kicks off at 1 a.m. on Saturday. The actual backup itself, it's only backing up what changes. That probably only takes an hour, if that, maybe maybe two, depending on if there have been a lot of changes. And then I set carbon copy cloner not to eject the hard drive when the backup is done so that Backblaze will back it up. And then the next morning when I get up, I check Backblaze. Usually it's got everything backed up. And then I manually eject the drive. Yeah, and that's something we hear from listeners sometimes that that buy a Drobo or a um, Synology or one of those solutions, and they have something go drastically wrong, and suddenly they lose data. And a lot of those devices, I know Drobo does, I believe Synology does too, makes copies of the stuff you've got on there. Um, but if somebody steals the Drobo or the Synology with both copies on it, you got a problem. Or if you know something goes wrong internally and just fries all the drives, so. Um, that's not good enough. Buying one of those doesn't solve the whole problem. You still need to to back that stuff up as well. So that's how Katie's doing it. I like that. Yeah. So I've got a local backup for quick recovery and then cold storage offsite backup, you know, cloud cloud backup for, you know, longer term, you know, big picture recovery. All right. Can I have, uh, I have a somewhat related question we get really often, and that's from people who haven't invested yet in Drobo or Synology. And they say, look, I just want cold storage. You know, that's kind of the question they're asking. They say, I want, st I want a place that I can just drive a bunch of ones and zeros, whether it's copies of my photos or, you know, recordings I've made or whatever, you know, um, uh, what should I do? Because there's so many options and there are. So let's just summarize those for a minute because everybody has to make a choice. 
Uh, I think the low end, the easiest is just the attached hard drive. Katie was just saying that they're now up to something like 10 terabytes. Uh, like I said, I bought a four terabyte one. That's It's a um, laptop size drive that's powered off the USB cable. So I could just Velcro it to the bottom of the desk and then I could um, attach that to the USB hub under the, on the bottom of my desk as well. And suddenly I added a bunch of four terabytes essentially to my iMac. Um, so that's, that's a very simple solution. You can get it. It doesn't cost you a lot of money to get in it. You own it. Um, the, I think the, the downside of something like that is they don't have built in extra copies, you know, like you get with some of the more expensive solutions, um, their drives and they're, they're probably spinning drives because if you're going to get it in there on a budget, you know, you're not going to get SSD storage. So those spinning drives are going to fail some point between two and four years after you buy them. Um, but that is a very good solution now that, and it's easier and cheaper than it ever has been. So that's one way you can get cold storage. Well, and again, if this is going to be an attached hard drive that you're keeping attached, you could probably back it up to your cloud store, uh, backup solution too, if you're willing to, if you're willing to keep it attached. Yeah. And to me, for cold storage, I think you almost want it. Well, I guess cold storage implies that you would be uh, disattaching or un- unattaching it. But I um. But either way, uh, just getting hard drives is a good way. I mean, another nice thing about that is they're easy to duplicate. Uh, one way you could do this, and we've talked about on the show and we've heard from listeners that do this, they have two or three of these external hard drives and they rotate them. So they, they always have one attached. And then maybe once a month they unattach it and then they put that in storage or send it with a relative or, or just get it off site somehow. And then they attach the second one and then start backing up to that one for the next month. So they've always got a current backup and then worst case scenario, nothing less than a month old offsite. Um, it's a very simple way to do it. doesn't cost a lot of money. Uh, the next step up from that is what I would call an attached RAID. That's what I'm using. I have a Drobo. I've had it several years. I, I There's a whole stuff, bunch of stuff I like about Drobo, the former sponsor of the show. So take it for what you will. But they're nice because they make two copies of the data. Um, if one of the drives goes bad, they've got internal smarts that allows you to replace it without losing data. And it's just a real simple solution. Like one of the things I like about the Drobo is you don't, doesn't matter what the size the drives are. I've got a couple in here that are pretty small. And as they start going bad, I just replace them with bigger ones and it organically grows to match my storage. It's a little more complicated than the prior drive system I was talking about because it's a, it's a thing that sits on the desk. I couldn't Velcro this to the bottom of my desk, um, but it's it's a little smarter too. And I like the fact that it's got the extra copy of the data and, you know, data is king. So that's a solution that is a, a, like a step up over the hard drive. It's going to cost you, you know, uh, somewhere in the hundreds to get one of these boxes. And after that, you just buy the drives to stick in them. And uh, I like that. I think that's a nice step up. If you're somebody who has a lot of data, um, I think that's a really good solution. Uh, professional photographers or even prosumers that have big data like videographers and people like that. I think that's a really good solution. And the next step up from that would be the NAS drive, which Katie was just talking about. But Katie, just spend a few minutes explaining NAS in general for people who haven't heard that yet. So NAS just basically means network attached storage. And it's typically a hard drive, usually, well, it's typically a grouping of hard drives. Um, usually two, four, or, you know, some other even number of hard drives that uh, I get now, I guess it could be odd numbers. It's some grouping of hard drives that are configured together in a RAID array, array or a type of RAID configuration 
that has some type of redundancy. So if a single drive fails, um, that the uh, other drives kick in so you don't actually lose data from a single hard drive failure. Some of them can be configured for dual redundancy. And a lot of these network, some of these network attached storage drives, that's just all they do. They're just a group of hard drives clumped together uh, that you can access over an Ethernet cable. And the beauty of that um, is that multiple computers can access them in the same household. Maybe even iOS devices can access them. And then an emerging category and a lot of things that are out there now are these the smart category of NASs like the Drobo 5N or the Synology NASs that um, typically it's, it's Linux or a version of Linux that they're they're running, but will have smarts to them. So you can do things like share files or uh, configure automatic downloads or do other things that are in the server type realm with the NAS besides just having it being a bucket of cold storage. So for example, on my Drobo 5N, I, you know, ran a Plex server. Um, and you could also do some file sharing. On my Synology now, I do file sharing and I run a Plex server. And I also um, have a uh, video surveillance system that I have hooked up with my house that instead of saving the video to the cloud, the video gets saved to my local Synology um, and it will automatically download things from certain URLs and certain things. So, for example, every time a new Mac Power Users episode posts or every time an Apple Keynote posts, uh, the Synology automatically downloads it for me. So um, that and many, many more things are, are types of things that smart NASs can do. Yeah. So and what does it cost generally to get into a smart NAS? Well, it depends. It depends on if you're looking at a two drive configuration, a four drive configuration, an eight drive configuration. I mean, it, it goes from there. You're typically talking in the hundreds of dollars realm. Um, so, uh, there's some of the the more budget friendly two drive synologies that are in like the 250 realm. Um, otherwise, you're probably looking, you know, for a, a basic four drive unit or if you're uh, you're probably looking in the uh, $400 realm. And if you want to get something that's more powerful that can do video transcoding and things like that, you're, you're probably looking in the, uh, five to $600 realm and that's bare. So then you also have to add, that's just the box. And then you have to add hard drives to that. Yeah. So if I was going to kind of summarize these, the, the attached hard drive is, is probably the easiest solution and cheapest because you're just buying the drives. Uh, it doesn't give you as many features. It doesn't give you as much backup. But it is a practical solution as long as you're smart about it and you handle it properly. I think the attached RAID is uh, definitely a step above just a basic attached hard drive. Like it gives you the backup and it gives you some more tools. Uh, one advantage of the attached RAID over the NAS drive is it's attached directly to your Mac. So it's available for things like Backblaze backup. And also it's got a much faster data connection uh, with a NAS drive. Uh, the advantage is it's almost like a separate computer in your house holding this data. So like for remote access, if you're on iOS, a NAS drive is really great for like holding big piles of data that you want to just access from your iOS device. So the NAS gives you a lot more flexibility. Um, it's probably the most expensive of the options. And for just pure input output, it's, it's slower uh, than the uh, stuff you're going to get. Uh, on an attached RAID drive. So like if you had a big video library and you put it on a NAS drive, uh, you may not be that happy with the performance when you stream it on your Mac because it's got to get through whatever your network connection is to get there. I is that a fair summary? Yeah, I think so. Uh, one one we didn't talk about, but is increasingly becoming an op option for cold storage is cloud storage. Uh, you know, Apple, if you pay them, I think it's $10 a month, you get a terabyte. Dro uh, Dropbox is $100 a year, you get a terabyte. 
So if you have a paid account with some of these cloud services, you can put a lot of stuff in there. Um, I could put like on Dropbox, I've put all of my JPEGs, you know, those photos I was talking about the backup later, I just stuck them all in Dropbox because I have a terabyte just sitting there. Why, why not use it? I have, um, uh, we just got past January 1st, you know, every year comic book fonts has that great sale on January 1st. So I bought another font this year and I put those things in cold storage in Dropbox. So I've got it available on all my devices if I ever want to access them. So uh, cloud storage is becoming a solution to it's not nearly as uh, it's more expensive and it doesn't have the capacity of these other options I've talked about. But if you have a relatively small amount of things you want to put there, it will work. Any other options for cloud data storage or big, big buckets of storage? I I think it's it's getting easier now. It's funny. Neither one of us uh, talked about DVDs and CDs and, uh, you know, the old traditional ways that we would make backups. That's just not even on the table anymore, is it? No, no, it's not. I'm sure someone will email us and tell us how wrong we are, but yeah, not going to change my mind. So. Wouldn't be the first to tell me how <laughs> wrong I am. <laughs> This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by Squarespace. It is the simplest way for anyone to create a beautiful landing page, website, or online store. You can start building your website today at squarespace.com and enter offer code MPU at checkout to save 10% off your first purchase. I love Squarespace. I use it for all of my websites. I've used it for my personal website, katiefloyd.com, and I've used it for my new law practice website at floydlaw.net. Why? Simply because it has easy-to-use tools and templates. It helps you capture every detail of what is important to you. I love that Squarespace puts all the power you need right in your hands, and it takes away all the pain points. You don't have to worry about hosting. You don't have to worry about scaling. You don't have to worry about what happens when you get stuck. You don't have to worry about backend databases. You don't have to worry about backing up your website. Squarespace just takes care of everything and lets you build a professional-looking website, regardless of your design skill, with no coding required. You'll be easily able to make a website that looks and feels exactly how you want. And Squarespace has state-of-the-art technology to help you power your site to ensure security and stability. They are trusted by millions of people and some of the most respected brands in the world. Their site templates are stunning to look at, and this is where it all starts. They all feature responsive design. They make your site look great no matter what size of the device. But this is just getting started. You pick your template, and then they are endlessly customizable so that your site doesn't necessarily look like someone else's site who built with Squarespace. You can choose colors. You can choose layouts. Uh, You can completely customize your site to your heart's desire. And they have amazing features like 24-7 live chat and email support. So if you get stuck, there's always someone there to help. They have teams located in New York, Dublin, and Portland who are always there to lend a hand. And if you want to sell things on your website, that used to require a whole different platform and lots of complicated things to set up, but not anymore. Squarespace just integrates it. They can allow anyone to easily add a store to their Squarespace site. And if you just need something simple, you can take a look at a Squarespace cover page. It's a single great one-page website that's easy to use and will get you up and running fast. And if you want to stretch Squarespace even further, you should check out their dev platform. Squarespace plans start at just $8 a month, and you can start a free trial with no credit card required. So start building your website today by going to squarespace.com. Make sure you use offer code MPU to get 10% off your first purchase. And thank you to Squarespace for their support of Mac Power users and all of Relay FM. All right, Katie, one that we get all the time is managing Apple IDs. I mean, I think that that question comes in at least every couple of days. Um, so how do you deal with these Apple IDs? So probably the most common question that we get about Apple IDs is 
what happens if you end up with two Apple IDs and you now need to merge everything uh, that you have with these various Apple IDs? The problem is, is there's not a good answer to this because Apple has not created any method, official or unofficial, for saying, hey, I'm David at MaxSparky.com and hey, I'm David at Gmail.com and I want uh, I, I want to merge, you know, let me send you some kind of verification and then let me let me turn all of these into one. And there are also pretty strict rules on how you can change your email address with the Apple ID. So that's a big pain. Um, so what what do you do with that? There there's not a perfect solution. So what we have are kind of workarounds, but I think you can use family sharing to some degree as a workaround to merge two Apple IDs. But I think you have to understand that this is not going to be a perfect solution and you're likely going to end up losing some things and potentially having to rebuy some things. Yeah. A lot of it's dependent on the type of media. Right. Um, the, the good news is, is a couple of things are non-issues. First off, music is really a non-issue anymore because the music is all DRM free now. So um, upgrade your music to get the DRM free versions. You can, there's kind of a workaround that you can do through iTunes match. If you don't have the DRM free version, you, you might have to end up having to pay for uh, an iTunes match account, but um, you can get the DRM free versions of the music that you've already bought and then just move those over to your new Apple ID and, you know, call it a day. So music is pretty much a, a solved problem. Um, for the rest of the stuff, what I would say is, Look at the Apple ID where you have the most stuff. And I, I guess take music out of the equation since since that's a problem that we can solve. And let's make that your primary Apple ID. And then your let's call the other one your secondary Apple ID. I would say let's set up a family sharing account where one person in the family is your primary Apple ID and another person in the family is your secondary Apple ID. And let's put these two people in the same family. By doing that, at least temporarily, the primary Apple ID is going to be able to gain access to most, maybe not all, but most of the media and apps purchased by the secondary Apple ID. And so the way that you can do this is if the primary Apple ID holder now goes into their purchased tab in Apple you should now be able to see things that were purchased by the secondary Apple ID holder. Um, David, have you done this at all? If you've tried to to download something that one of your other family members has downloaded? Yeah, and it works fine. Um, but the um, just to kind of add a, a layer to this, so I have a family of four, and I am the founder of this iTunes empire, right? So uh, they do allow you to split. So I can have my my legacy iTunes account that I started in the eighties or something, I don't know, whenever a long time ago. Um, and then I've got my iCloud ID, which has my calendar and other data on it. Now for my family members, they are able to use their, their just their iCloud account to access through family sharing all of the stuff in that legacy account. Me as the founder of it though, I am not, I actually have these accounts split. Now I could create a separate family member for myself if I wanted to, that's adding a layer of complexity I just don't want to deal with. Well, but what, what you should be able to do once you have these things set up now is your primary and your secondary. You should now be able to go in your in your purchased items and, and manually download to the primary, sec, primary Apple ID holder many, not all, but many of the secondary 
person's purchased items. It's up to the app developer. Right. A lot of this is going to depend on the app developer. So I think you're going to have to, you know, to some degree, keep a manual list and figure out, um, you know, what you weren't able to transfer. And some of that you may not care about. I mean, I know that I certainly have bought stuff over the course of my Apple ID that, you know, if I lose it, it wouldn't bother me in the least. But yeah. So I would say transfer as much as you can and then make a list of that that you cannot transfer and decide what of it and how much it would cost you to rebuy and how important that is. And it's so frustrating because this problem, I mean, we hear about it all the time because everybody's dealing with it. And the problem is not technological. The problem, my guess, without having inside knowledge, is almost entirely legal. It's these licensing agreements, whenever it is that Apple made these deals. Um, the media companies say, look, if you're going to sell it, that's fine, but they cannot be transferred to any future account, even most likely the same account by the same person. And there's just until they can renegotiate those contracts, which it doesn't sound to me like they really have even that much interest in doing, we're always going to have this problem. So um, any any other ideas or anything that I didn't cover with how to to merge two Apple IDs? Or is that kind of the best and only way to do it? It's a workaround. If somebody out there has got a better way, let me know. If somebody out there has ever convinced Apple to let them move their media into a different account, I would love to hear from you because I've never heard of them actually agreeing to that. And I don't think it's because they don't want to. I think they don't really have a, a say in it. I think they've agreed contractually not to do that. And I would say if, if you're on a family sharing account and, and you've got stuff in one account that you want access to, go ahead and download it from one account into the other. Because my understanding is once it's been downloaded from, you know, say the secondary account into the primary account, now it's considered as though it also belongs to the primary account holder. I, well, my understanding is if you change the credit card, that, that gets withdrawn. So I, I haven't tested that, though. So I don't want to blow up my my family iTunes sharing and then deal with the consequences of that. I'll follow up on that. Also, let us know if you know the answer to that question. If not, I'll try and get to the bottom of it. Yeah, it's it's imperfect, but I think it's the best that you that you have for now. Um, the other question that comes up relating to Apple IDs, and it's it's one that happens is how do I now merge? Or I'm sorry, the 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 opposite question. How do I now separate what I call conjoined accounts? So. Let's say I've I've only ever had one account, but now I have a kid who wants to split off and have their own account. Or or the way that I see it more often, um, and and I certainly don't mean to stereotype, but you know, typically you you have one account that is shared among spouses, but then a second spouse now gets their own device. Or it used to be that a family would share one computer. But now that everybody has iOS devices, people are wanting their own stuff and people are wanting their own email addresses and their own Apple IDs and their own stuff. So you're taking what used to be the family email address or the family contacts and calendars and now want to split it up, let's say for simplicity's sake, between instead of just one person, between a couple, you now want to split it up into, into two different people. It, it, there's just no easy way to do that as well. It, you can pull... I mean, there's different types of data you've got in those iCloud accounts, like, for instance, contacts. Um, that's when we hear all the times people say, well, I just want to share contacts with my spouse, but I don't want to share an email account. There there are a couple of third-party apps, I think, that will do this, but it, there, there's no good solution to just share contacts in an email account. And I would say if you can, don't set up a shared email account to begin with. Um, you know, if you're, you're sparksfamily at gmail.com, you know, fine, keep it and forward it to somebody, but 
you know, really David and Daisy and everybody needs to have their own email address. You know, I, I think that's just kind of, you know, I, I think 10 years ago, sharing an email address was one thing, but I, I think nowadays everybody needs to have their own. So I would say everybody needs to have their own Apple IDs, which means they're going to have their own email addresses and then start building their own contacts and their own calendars. Um, and which is great for family sharing because now you can share a family calendar if you want. There, There is no way currently to share contacts, but, you know, start divvying up the, the iCloud storage and the iCloud um, data because the problem that you have is you end up with everything in a primary person's account and then it has to go up from there. And the only way that I know of to separate it is just, you know, have either one person get a separate ID or have both people go ahead and get separate Apple IDs, depending on on how you want to split it up, and then just do a manual process of, you know, exporting and re-importing data and and just slowly start separating it out. Yeah, and, and honestly, that data should be separated from day one, because even in a marriage where, you know, husband and wife are very close, they're still going to have different contacts that each one wants and the other doesn't want. And and these days, I think one of the reasons it started this way was because all this stuff costs money. It costs money to get, you know, one of these online accounts. Now these accounts are free. So there's really no reason not to have a separate one for every person. Uh, I know it's kind of a pain to share data out, but it's a much bigger pain to unwind the data later. Um, we're not really giving an answer, though, are we? We're just saying that you should have never done it to begin yeah, with. Don't do that if you haven't. And if you have, you're, you're, it's going to take a little bit of manual unwinding, but it's possible. You can unwind it. You know, it's just a manual process. It, it is tough managing this stuff. And it's again, I think it comes down to legal stuff. I mean, I think Apple would like to make it easier. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Gazelle, the trusted online marketplace for buying and selling used electronics. Visit gazelle.com today and let them know you heard about it at the Mac Power Users. Over the last few months, we've got new iPhones from Apple and new MacBooks. If the rumors are correct, we're going to get new iPads pretty soon. If you're like me, you've probably got a drawer somewhere with some used Apple hardware in it that's just collecting dust. Don't do that. Turn it into cash at gazelle.com. Gazelle.com buys your used Apple gear and select gear from other manufacturers as well. Just go to gazelle.com and let them know the condition of your gadget, and they'll give you a price. If you take them up on the offer, they'll even send you a box. It's completely painless and risk-free. When we did the most recent iPhone upgrades, my daughter's phone was cracked. I was still able to get something for it, though, because I just let Gazelle know that the phone was damaged. They still gave me a good price. I sent it in and got paid. It was great. Payments are fast. You can get a check in the mail, an Amazon gift card in your inbox, or direct deposit into your PayPal account. So turn those used devices into cash at gazelle.com. Now, if you're on the flip side and you're looking for a device, gazelle.com also can take care of you. I just had an email from a listener asking about a good source for a used iPhone for his mother-in-law. He's tired of trying to fix her Android phone every time he sees her. I told him to go to gazelle.com and he did. He wrote me back and said that he got her a really nice used iPhone 6 for Christmas. She loves it. He got to save some money and he's the hero. The reason to go to gazelle.com to buy your used devices is because Gazelle puts them through a rigorous 30-point inspection process. This ensures that they are in perfect working order. Gazelle only sells devices in good or excellent condition, so you can pick your budget, pick your device, and then buy it from Gazelle. They have devices for all major carriers, including AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile, and Sprint. 
If you need a little help, they can finance the purchase for you with easy monthly payment plans, and they also have extended warranties. So whether you're selling or buying, the answer is gazelle.com, G-A-Z-E-L-L-E.com. Head there today to buy or sell your used electronic gadgets and let them know you heard about it from the Mac Power users. All right, David. Um, another one we get very often is, you know, where does all of this stuff go? You know, particularly with the new year that we have approaching, a lot of people have New Year's resolutions. Um, a lot of people have things that they do regularly, um, you know, like take out the trash. Does that go in reminders? Does it go into OmniFocus? Does it go on the calendar? Does it go like into some kind of third-party habit app? I mean, on my home screen alone, I've got four different types of apps that are kind of productivity slash reminders type apps, which seems a little ridiculous, but they all for me have very different purposes, you know, and then I got a calendar. I mean, how do you figure out what goes in what bucket? Yeah, I don't think there's one answer to this. We get this question all the time, though, and people want want to know what are they supposed to do? You know, where do you put, you know, write the proposal versus buy carrots? And, you know, how does a calendar fit into all of that as well? And and I always tell people when when I get these emails is there really isn't one solution. I can tell you how I do it. Katie's going to tell you how she does it. But everybody else has to kind of make their own decisions. Um uh, I think one of the the underlying philosophies of this is simplicity. You don't want to have a, more apps than you need and more places than you you know need to go and find this stuff out. And to that extent, there are some applications that could do everything. Like you know, OmniFocus is one, but there's other task managers that that probably could do all of the things we're about to talk about. So why not just use one app and be done with it? Um, for me, I can tell you I've tried that and it's just not really right for me because there's certain things that I think belong in OmniFocus, which is really where I make my money and and really you know get the things that are important to my life done versus buying carrots, which I don't feel like belong there. And I, it sounds completely arbitrary, but it just works that way for me. So I um so in my mind, uh, I put kind of the sacred work in uh, OmniFocus, the stuff that's really important to get done. And I have very uh, carefully managed projects and contexts. And that's where, you know, 95% of anything related to project management goes for me. Um, the, um, so that's where I start. Uh, the next thing for me is reminders and reminders for me, Apple, and this is the Apple reminders app. It's, it has a very simplified shared reminders list. So every time I have something that needs to be shared with somebody, like my wife and I share a grocery list and my whole family shares a list for Target and the hardware store. So when I'm at the hardware store and I see that there's batteries on the list, I can buy batteries, you know. Um the um so that that serves kind of that purpose. I like that in the sense that we can all add to it and remove from it easily. I also like that I just don't want cat carrots and batteries in the middle of my OmniFocus work because when I'm in there, I'm doing my hard work. Uh, the next thing category for me is what I call habit apps, and there's a bunch of them. I just wrote up at Max Sparky recently. There's a new one I started using recently that I'm I'm really impressed with. It's called Productive, and it's just a nice little habit app. So um, things like you know saying. You know, when you go to the dentist and they say, so how often are you actually flossing? You know, <laughs> that would be um, when I go to the dentist. It's a very easy question for me to answer. 
well, I'm trying to take good care of my choppers. So I, I'm trying to be more mindful about that. So I can go in with a straight face, say, you know, most, most twice a day usually. And, um, and so I wanted to game it. So I started looking for a habit app and, and found this one productive that I really like. So I have a little thing that gives me a notification in the morning and the evening, have you floss today? And, um, you can go really deep with those. I mean, if there's especially like new year's resolution type January stuff where you want to like get better at something, it's a good way to kind of develop the habit. Uh, but that's not something I would put in OmniFocus either. And I wouldn't put in reminders cause I don't need to share with my family how often I'm flossing my teeth. Uh, so that's a third app that I'm using. Uh, and there's not a whole lot in there, but it serves a purpose. Then there's one that Katie turned me on to called do D U E. And that is just a super annoying task app. And it's what it does really well is it. You mean that in the most positive way, though? I do. It blares alarms at you like crazy. So uh, when it's my turn to publish the Mac Power Users, uh, my life basically isn't over until I get it done. And and the Do app makes sure of it. Or when it's time to take out the trash on Thursday night, you know, where I live. So I only have a couple things in here. But if it's something that I just want it to be super annoying for me, do solves that problem. And then on top of all of it is calendars. I'll come back to that. But before I get to calendars, how are you handling the task stuff, Katie? Okay. Well, I looking at my iPhone right now, I have three task management related apps on my my home screen. They're they're all in the same row, so it's easy to keep them track. Actually, no, they're not. I lied. Um I have OmniFocus, Reminders, and Do that are that are all in my home screen. And they all have different purposes. And I, I share kind of a similar philosophy to you. Um, OmniFocus is, again, anything that is sacred, anything. I mean, that is my official Katie Floyd approved task management system. Um, OmniGroup, you can have that as a slogan if you would like. Um, and that's that's where everything that's very serious goes in. That's my GTD methodology. That is my system. Do is for anything that is time sensitive. So I consider that more, uh, I don't consider OmniFocus reminders. I consider that test management. I consider do a better reminder application. So if I need to be reminded to post MPU Saturday at 8.30, do is going to remind me to do that until I get it done. So anything that is very time critical that has to be done at a specific time, that gets put in do. And in fact, do is probably a candidate to come off my lock screen at my home screen at some point, because I don't, I'm not really in there a whole lot. You know, I, I use it now a lot with notifications and from, from 3d touch. So that's probably one that's going to come off of that. They have nice notifications on the watch too, by the way, if you're a watch user, I tell you what they don't do super well is they don't sync really well. Um, that, that's, they really need to work on their syncing engine a little bit. I mean, they sync well enough, but Anyway, I digress. Really? Now, do you use the iCloud as the back? What do you, I think you use iCloud or Dropbox for syncing up. I use Dropbox as the back end syncing because Dropbox is the one that will sync in the background, which is very important. iCloud does not. Yeah, I use iCloud and it works fine, but I've got like three things in it. So it doesn't really, it's not, it's not super difficult for what I'm doing. Um, and then I use the built-in reminders app for, for one purpose is to get things quickly into OmniFocus because that's kind of a quick entry into OmniFocus, either with Siri or by quickly entering things into the Reminders app, because I have OmniFocus pull from the Reminders app, um, is one way that I use the Reminders app. But the other way that I use the Reminders app, I would make it akin to a Post-it note. Anything that I would stick on a Post-it note, I would put in the Reminders app. So it's my shopping list. It's, you know, if I have a list, I have one called Priority List, just kind of like a running post-it note of if I have five things that I have to do on Saturday morning, 
I will put that in the reminders app because I don't want to clog up my OmniFocus with that. I mean, if these are all things that I'm going to errands that I'm going to run on Saturday morning, but you know, I just want to stick them somewhere so that I can have quick reference. It's like stuff that you would write on a post-it note. It's interesting because I of those four apps I talked about: Productive, Do, OmniFocus, and Reminders. Only two of them are on my home screen: Productive and OmniFocus. Uh, reminders and Do both go into a folder on my home screen. I, I don't. I don't really need them that often. And I, when I do, I can just pull down and type a few letters and get into them. Calendars. You were going to talk about calendars though. Yeah. And so Katie and I are, are taking the approach of kind of using multiple tools because we've got in our heads a different, you know, use for each one. And I think there's nothing wrong with that either. Uh, like I said, at the beginning, the minimalist idea of just one app is fine. If you need to use multiple ones, that's fine too. You just got to figure out what to get things done with. The other the follow-up question we always get to that is, okay, well, how do you handle your calendars when you add a project OmniFocus? Does it go into your calendar? And the answer is no. Uh, I don't. I treat it completely separate. A calendar to me is where I, my body needs to be in a certain place. Generally, I mean, usually it's a meeting with some other person. Uh, so I quite often, well, you know, I'll put a meeting. Sometimes I'll put a meeting with myself. You know, and by that I mean maybe there's a special project I need to work on, and maybe that project has tasks in OmniFocus. But I don't have time to deal with it right now. So I will set an appointment next Tuesday at 8 a.m. for two hours to solve that problem. And then in OmniFocus, I'll just put the defer date of all that stuff to Tuesday at 8 a.m. And then it just disappears from my world until Tuesday at 8 a.m. But then I look at the calendar and I've got an appointment with myself to solve that problem. That's the closest I come to any overlap between my tasks and my calendar. And by the way, if I get to Tuesday at 8 a.m. and I can't do it, then I'll reschedule it with myself and I will move the, the OmniFocus stuff as well but I won't just let it slide and not do it. You have to treat an appointment with yourself just like you treat an appointment with somebody else. So, so largely there's very little overlap though between my tasks systems and my calendars. To me, in my head, they are completely different things. We need to have a calendar show. I know you had talked about doing one, but I'm doing some interesting things with um, automating calendar appointments, like having people schedule appointments with me and those types of services. So uh We'll talk about those at some point on a future show. That show is coming. There's a bunch of new apps out. I mean, there's a, there's a lot to share in the, in the world of calendars on Mac and iOS these days. So um, uh, that's not too far off. So if you've got a definite opinion on that stuff, let us know. Maybe we can include it in the show. That show's in development, I guess, is the way to put it. I have notes. I have notes, Katie. <laughs> I, I, I have notes uh, in one of my many test managers here. Okay. So, all right. Uh, let's talk about. Um, I think we might have might have time for for one more. And yeah. And by the way, the idea of getting through this list was a complete bust. We have maybe got halfway through the list. So, someday in the future, we'll we'll hit some more of these questions. There's going to be a part two of this. I think maybe maybe we'll do like a, an every six month check in with with big questions, perhaps. Um, another one that we get all the time, and it's it's one that's been around for a while, is. How do I move my iTunes library off my main hard drive? And this is hard because, you know, iTunes is so integrated into everything that we do. And Apple really hasn't made this process a whole lot easier. But especially with SSDs not getting a whole lot bigger and certainly not getting a whole lot cheaper, you know, people are looking to move, you know, just like, can I move my photos or can I move, you know, they want to know, can I move my iTunes library off my main hard drive? Uh, and it's possible. It is something that you can do, um, but it's something that you need to do with a little trepidation and, and certainly be aware of, of how you're going to do that. 
So there are a couple of steps you can follow and a couple of things that you need to think about. Um, first, I think you need to think about how often are you in your iTunes library and how often are you accessing data that is stored locally on your iTunes library? Because that, I think, is a very different question now than it was even two or three years ago, thanks to streaming music services. I'm not a big fan of streaming music services. I don't use them that often. I don't use them at all. I don't subscribe to any. But David, I would imagine that you don't listen to things that are actually on your computer's hard drive nearly as much anymore as you did two years ago. You know, it's an interesting experiment. Um, My daughter uh, got a new computer or, or a used computer from one of the family members. And when I set up her iTunes, usually what I do is I've got this, um, this, you know, storage of all the music that we've purchased over the years saved as MP3 files. And then I would install it on her drive and say like, okay, she's not going to want Miles Davis, but she is going to want somebody else. Um, so I would do that when I set up this new computer for her, I didn't do that. Instead, we just put her, I uh, was it iTunes music credentials in Apple music, Apple music. There we go. And she just went from there and she does not have any music installed on that computer. And to my knowledge has probably not downloaded any music. And that was eight months ago and I have not heard any complaints. So I think it is, you're right. And not only is it just music, I think the movie streaming and the video streaming has gotten a lot better too. If you're buying content from Apple, you don't need to download all that stuff. You can stream it when you want to watch it. Um, so the size of iTunes libraries are a lot smaller than they used to be. If you're in streaming music, me, not so much. Mine's exactly the same size. It always was. I, I buy maybe David, maybe 10 tracks a year. I guess, you know, we, we've talked about it. Music is not as important to me as it is to I, whereas I am probably downloading, um, 20 albums a month. You've seen Apple music. (laughs) So I I think the first thing you need to, you need to do an analysis of is, is how important is this and and how important is it having the actual local stuff on your computer? I think for a lot of people, like David pointed out, it's not as important now as it used to be. So those are things to consider, but regardless, before you start deleting anything off your Mac, you want to make sure that you have a full backup. And so what I would say, especially if you have iTunes or excuse me, Apple music or iTunes match enabled, you want to go through and you can go through into iTunes in the view options and you can turn on the view option to see if you have downloaded everything from your Mac. You can look at the iCloud icon and look at the iCloud status if you have that enabled and just make sure that you have everything. Because what I want you to do is I want you to make a good backup copy of everything. And in order to make sure that you have everything backed up, you want to make sure that initially, at least, you have everything downloaded. So what I would suggest that you do is, is um, you know, make sure that you have iTunes Match or Apple Music or whatever, if you subscribe to one of those services. If not, you can skip this step. But make sure that you have that turned on. Turn on the view options so you can see specifically if you're missing any media and go ahead and download everything to your to your hard drive. Now, this is going to go the other direction of where you want to temporarily because we're going to increase your storage space here or decrease your storage space because we're increasing your music. But we're going to do this temporarily while you back up your data. So I want you to get, the idea is get all of your music into one place, into your iTunes library on your Mac. Um, the other thing is that I want you to do is, is I want you now to back up all of that music somewhere. This would be a great time to use your network attached storage or to go ahead and use your cold storage, but go ahead and back up that iTunes music library to that network attached storage. Um, And one of the ways that you can make sure that you have all of that music in your iTunes music library to begin with 
is by going through a process to consolidate your library. Um, and I'm going to put a link in the show notes to an iMore article that explains this in a little more detail. But what the consolidation process does is it makes sure that all of your iTunes music is actually in your music library. That, you know, if you had some of your music in your iTunes library, some of your music on your desktop, some of your music in your, um, you know, user folder somewhere else, some of your music in your documents folder, it's going to go through and make sure that all of your music actually is living in your iTunes library. So you can go that into the iTunes, uh, open up iTunes, go into, I think, file um, into library, and then there's an option to organize library. And you'll see little tech uh, checkboxes um, for consolidate files, and, and you can follow the prompts there. And that may take a few minutes, but you can go ahead and consolidate the files. So what we're doing with these preliminary steps is you're getting all of the music both in the cloud and anywhere that it may be on your computer into that iTunes music library that lives in your user folder, uh, you know, in the home folder and user folder and the music folder. And that's similar to, is that the same thing as keep iTunes media folder organized? Is that what you're talking about? There are two different process. One is to consolidate the files, to bring them all into the iTunes music library. And then you can choose how you want to organize it, if you want to organize them or not. Yeah, but they're both in there. And they also in the advanced tab, they have a checkbox to copy the files to the iTunes media folder when you're adding to the library. So they get it all in one place. That's I think that's the what we're saying here. That's the initial big step one is get all of your media in one place and then back that sucker up, back it up so many ways, you know, back it up to your network attached storage, back it up to your cold storage, back it up to the cloud, back it up everywhere. Um, now that it's backed up, you can now take that iTunes music library and move it to an external drive. So to do this, you can quit iTunes and you can connect some kind of external drive to your computer. You can do this with a portable USB hard drive. You can do it with some kind of cold storage drive that you keep connected. Um, or depending on the type of computer you have, um, you know, David, you had one of those little nifty drives for a while that was like a small flash drive that would fit almost flush in with the computer. It was a way you could kind of keep your your library with you all the time um, even though it was technically on a separate hard drive. Yeah. For a while I was doing, my wife had run out of space on her computer. So, uh, they make this drive that's a, it's like a half size SD slot and it pushes into the SD slot on the MacBook pro. And it's an, basically an extra drive. And we were trying to put her photos library on there for a while, but she outgrew that as well. So eventually I just paid somebody to to put a bigger SSD in it. But the, um, yeah, that was, that's one solution that would work. So anyway, you're going to take this iTunes music folder and you're going to put it somewhere on an external drive, something. Um, you may need to authenticate or do things like that. But then when you, now that you've got that, now you can delete the external, the, the, sorry, now you can delete the iTunes music folder that's on your hard drive. Um, and then now that that's gone, when you, next time you relaunch iTunes, you're going to hold down the option key at the same time that it relaunches. And iTunes is going to give you an option to choose a library. And so now you're going to tell iTunes where you moved that library to. So you're going to select either the external hard drive or wherever it is that you put your iTunes library. And now iTunes is going to know that that's where it's going to look for this external hard library from now on. With a caveat, I'll tell you one problem with this is if ever that external hard drive becomes disconnected and iTunes starts looking for it, um, it will and it doesn't see it there. So let's say you've got it on an external USB or whatever, and for some reason it's not there someday and you go fire up iTunes, iTunes will just start a new library on your local drive. 
Um, so be careful, you know, be mindful of it. I guess I'd say is, is if you do this, go check it every once in a while to make sure that it's still looking in the proper media folder location. You can find that under advanced and preferences, uh, because it may get sneaky once in a while and switch back to the native drive on you. Now, so this is, this is how to do kind of a, a hard move of your iTunes library. I think now in the age of Apple Music and in the age of iTunes Match, although I don't know how long iTunes Match is going to be around, um, I think there might be a better way to all of this. Although I still think you should do all the processes of manually downloading all your music and consolidating it and backing up. But I think now there might be another option rather than carrying around an external hard drive. And I think that option, if you're someone, as long as you have fairly regular and fairly steady internet access, that option may be to let your music live in the cloud and play it on demand. Or even um, another, that that's true, you could do that. Another thing you can do is if you're smart with your playlists, um, you can download those playlists as needed. So for instance, uh, if you've done a good job of stars or likes or whatever, and you've got a way to filter your library down to a relatively small amount of music, um, you can access that as well so that, that you can you can keep most of it online and just keep the, the real gems that you want local. So, I mean, that's kind of the hybrid approach is maybe keep your favorite couple of playlists or, you know, make a playlist of your favorite music and keep it local and then download everything else on the go. That probably is what makes more sense. As long as you've got your, I think regardless, even if you're going to subscribe to one of these music services, I like having a copy of my own stuff somewhere. So I still think you should go through the first couple of steps and stick your own music and media in cold storage somewhere. I think that there's even a bigger argument. If you're getting ready to sign up for an online streaming service, especially Apple Music, that starts to merge, you know, with your existing library, and it becomes difficult to know what's the stuff that you bought and paid for versus the stuff you're just renting through Apple Music, is to get a good copy of your library saved externally before you even go down that road. Well, David, I think that's about all we're going to have time for today in terms of big questions, but we've got more. So we'll probably do another one of these shows at some point in the future. Yeah, I was just thinking, though, I have to ask, Katie, as you were talking about backing up all your music and we talked about your photos, um, Rogue One, right? Um, what do you think the Empire did with the Death Star Punch? Don't you think they had a version of like Empire Backblaze somewhere? Or do you think the only copy of the Death Star plans was on that that awesome island? Well, I think we need to be careful because we need to be careful not to give any spoilers. But um, I think it's pretty obvious that that was the only copy based on how the movie played out. And I think that might be one of the reasons why things didn't turn out so well for the Death Star in the end. And then the second Death Star was probably slowed down because they didn't have a backup. I, I'm just glad that the Empire does not listen to Mac Power users. That's all I'm going to say. There you go. All right. If you got feedback for us, send it to us at feedback at MacPowerUsers.com. Uh, we're also on Twitter at MacPowerUsers. Katie's at Katie Floyd. I am at Max Sparky. We love all of your questions. As you can see, we, we hold on to them. They're precious to us. Uh, we'll do some more of these big question shows over time. We've got a bunch more that haven't been answered, and I'm sure there's a few more that will come in between now and then. And uh, we, we like doing the show. I hope you enjoyed it as well. We'll be back to our regular kind of full content programming next week, but I'm glad we took the time to do this one. Me too. Thank you to our sponsors, Pixelmator, MindNode, Squarespace, and Gazelle, and we will see you all next week. Bye.